Thank you for listening to the Riverbend Church podcast. Riverbend Church exists to lead all people to know, love, and live new life in Jesus Christ. We hope that you enjoy this message. We are diving in today to week three of our series, Come to the Table. And here's the standing invitation that Jesus uh, put before us and keeps before us constantly in our lives. It's this, come to the table. No matter what you've been through, no matter what kind of baggage you bring, no matter how broken you've been in your past, no matter what things that haunt you in your history, you have a God that loves you and says, come to my table. You can find healing here. I get it. You're not perfect. That's actually what the gospel is about. There's no way we could be perfect. Come to the table because I am. And here you'll find new life. And so throughout the life of Jesus, We actually find him teaching and healing and encouraging and rebuking and sharing life with friends around the table. And so far in this series, we've been to two different tables. You can go back and catch these online. But the first table we went to was the table of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And then last week, we went to the table of the Pharisee. And this week, we're going to maybe one of the most famous tables in all of Scripture, the table of the Last Supper, where Jesus had the Last Supper. It's a pretty famous picture and idea. Um, it's where he instituted the Lord's Supper for, uh, th- that we still follow to this day. And so let me get the title of the message today. Here it is. The title of the message is First One Up. Now, let me ask you a question. Any of you fast eaters in the room, you're always done first and ready to get up first. Anybody? Me too, man. We can run the world, right? Listen, you don't need to waste time eating. Eat your food and get back to work. You got life to live, you know? And I, I get it. Sometimes uh, Courtney will look at me and go like, You're, you are speed eating right now. What is your problem? <laughs> I don't know. I just get things on my mind, and I'm here to fuel and get back to the deal, you know? And sometimes that's not what you need to be doing. You need to be sitting and enjoying. You know what? This is a little secret. I have a hard time sitting at the table with Jesus for long because I like to move on to the next thing. I'm like, come on, man, let's go. Uh, another thing I thought about when I was writing this, you know, I was also the first one up in my house almost always. Now, I'm about to tell you how weird I am. Some of you may not come back. I'm weird. I would wake up in elementary school, like third grade, I remember. I didn't want to miss anything, so I would wake up at like 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. I don't know exactly what time. I would put my clothes on, shoes and everything, and get back in my bed so I could just get up and go. And my mom goes, you're weird. And I go, you're right, man. Like, I, I, I wanted to be the first one up. I just didn't. And for me, it was just I didn't want to miss anything. Like, I wanted to go, go, go. I was so driven. A big engine. I got a big gas pedal and a little brake pedal. That's what my family knows. And so God's had to work on that over years of extending the brake pedal size and going, you need to pump it sometimes. But the invitation is to come to the table. And the story today, though, it's about actually at some point in time, somebody has to be the first one up from the table. But not in the same way as me, like first one up in the morning or first one up because you're done eating. First one up because you're at a table of comfort for too long or you're at a table of blessing and honor for so long, a table of stubbornness and pride for too long. You'll stop hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit when he's saying, hey, it's time to get up from the table and get busy. So as much as we've talked about coming and sitting at the table, the table of the Last Supper actually teaches us that somebody has to be first up from the table. And so... We're going to pick up in the story today in a very famous place in the storyline of Jesus where it's Thursday night before he is arrested, where he has the Last Supper. On Friday morning, he'll be nailed to the cross in less than 24 hours from this time to where we're reading, Jesus will be dead. 
His body will be laid in a grave and his spirit will be doing what he does and then he'll be raised to life again. And so this is the table where he shares the Lord's Supper. He institutes this ordinance for us. But here's what I want to do today as we walk through this. I want to ask you a couple of questions and they're sort of probing questions if, if you'll let me extend them into your heart and mind for a minute as we walk through the passage. But Thursday night, here's what it says. Before the Passover celebration, that was a Jewish uh, festival um, that the Jews had celebrated throughout their history for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so this is a time of year where they're coming to the Passover. It says, before the celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come. He'd come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. And so when it says that Jesus knew that his hour had come, you know, uh, if you look throughout the story of Jesus as you read it, you'll find that a lot of times... There were certain places where he said, my hour has not yet come. One time he was at a wedding. They ran out of wine. His mom said, hey, Jesus, help him out. And, uh, and Jesus said, hey, what do you want me to do? My hour's not here yet. Several other times the Pharisees tried to arrest him, but it was impossible. You know why? Jesus said, it's not my hour yet. It, it wasn't his time yet. This is the first time that he actually owns it, though. He says, my, the hour is now. The time has come to leave this world and return to the Father. But then it says he had loved the disciples during ministry on earth, and he had loved them to the very end. You know another way to translate that, he loved them to the very end, that he loved them utterly and completely. There was no way that a man could ever feel more love on this earth than what Jesus showed in that moment or in these years that he had with them. And so here's what it says. He knew he was going to leave the disciples behind. He knew it was his time to go to the cross. And so it was time for supper. And the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, that he had come from God and would return to God. Now, I want to explain this. It says the devil had already prompted Judas. So there's two pictures of what we know about Judas being the betrayer of Jesus. One is from the sovereignty of God, the lens. From God's principle, Jesus said all the way from the beginning, he knew Judas was the one that was going to betray him. But on the flip side of it, we also see the humanity at work. Satan had been working in Judas's heart for a long period of time. I don't think it was just all of a sudden Satan showed up and convinced Judas, hey, go and betray your master for 30 pieces of silver. He works in Judas's life just like he does ours, a little bit at the time, a little compromise, a little compromise. People actually thought that he probably stole money. Uh, he was the treasurer for their group. He maybe stole money, had lack of integrity after a little lack of integrity, and eventually it gets to this point. So when you study this out, what it means that he prompted Judas is he has actually already convinced Judas over the course of time to betray Jesus on the, at this moment. And so Jesus knew time was short. Now, this is, this is where the, uh, the, one of the most mind-blowing things Jesus ever did culturally. We don't feel it today, but culturally, it would have been hard to understand. He knew that his time was short. He also knew that he was God. He knew that he came from God. He knew that he was going back to God. He knew also, in this verse, it says that all authority, the Father, God, had put all authority in his hands. What does he do? Look at verse 4. So he got up from the table, he took off his robe, he wrapped a towel around his waist, he poured water into a basin, then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel he had around them. So when I read this, I automatically thought, 
these two things together. Jesus knew who he was. And as soon as he was affirmed in the fact that he was in complete and utter control, he got up and he started serving other people. And you know the question that came to my mind? It's a question I want you to wrestle with today here. It's the first question we'll look at. Does my identity fuel humility? Jesus knew he was God. He knew where he was going. He knew he had all authority. And then he got up in humility. It was almost like there was a freedom that came. It shows us there is complete freedom. When you know who you are, you can serve without worrying about what people think. When you are affirmed in who you are in Christ, you don't have to be worried if people like what you believe or not. When you get confident in what Jesus says about you and the fact that he has saved you and you can't work your way, when you get confident in that fact, it will give you a humility to walk through life with. You don't have anything to prove, in other words. You've got a kingdom to build. You've got a purpose to accomplish, but you don't have anything to prove. And so I thought about it. I wonder if insecurity is in the process of stealing somebody's joy right now. I'm not saying you're not motivated and you're not productive. I'm just saying that the motivation behind it, though, is insecurity. I'm not enough, and therefore I've got to prove myself. How many men, how many women, how many high schoolers, how many college students, how many young adults get to the place where insecurity is all that drives you? I want to look good. I want people to see me as successful. And so the fear of looking like a failure drives everything you do. You know what the problem with that is? There's no love in it. You miss the greatest thing that God did for us, which is loved us just like we are. But I wonder if insecurity is stealing people's joy. Believers, people who should know who they are in Christ and have a confidence that whether I'm in the spotlight or whether I'm in backstage in, in, the, in the kingdom, whatever I'm doing, it matters the same and nothing can steal my joy. I also thought about this. If insecurity steals your joy, often unforgiveness hijacks your purpose. And pride becomes the cover-up, the cloak that we put on, just so that we appear humble enough to be a Jesus follower, but we're really wrestling. See, I thought about it. There's no more powerful man or woman of God than one who knows who they are, who knows where they're going, knows what they have, and has nothing to prove. That is a dangerous man or woman of God right there, one who is confident. And so what did Jesus do? says he knew who he was, he knew how powerful he was, he knew exactly where he was going and where he came from, he knew all those things. And what he do? He got up and started washing feet. Why, why is it a big deal? Because you know, Joe, that really, in our culture today, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's a big deal because they came in off the road, they wore sandals, they walked on dirty streets, filthy. Think about what was going on under those toenails, you know what I mean? Like, it was bad. And so they come in off the street... And they come in to dinner. Now, usually, there would be a servant of the house that would meet them at the door. They'd take their sandals off and the servant. And not, a, not only any servant, it would have been the lowest servant in the house, whoever that was, would have washed the feet of all the guests who came in. But obviously, there was no servant there to wash. And I, we learned this is very intentional on Jesus' part. He didn't, he didn't make sure there was anybody there to do that. But nobody washed anybody's feet. They went in. I read a lot of scholars, and they said, if you look at how much the disciples loved Jesus, any of them would have washed Jesus' feet. I think any of us today, if our Lord and Savior came and sat on the stage, and that's what he wanted, wash feet, everybody would line up to do it. But do you know why they didn't do it? Because they would have been obliged. If, they, if anybody knelt down to wash Jesus' feet, then they would be obliged to wash the other 11 disciples' feet, and that's where they weren't going. You ever thought... 
I want to do something good for one person, but then I'd have to do it for everybody, and that kept you from doing something good. That's kind of what's going on here. But it's a big deal because they felt like it was a service too low for them to take on. See, we don't wash feet physically in our country anymore. I mean, hopefully you do in the bathtub or the shower, whatever you do, but I'm just saying, like, we don't, that's not a practice. We don't have people at the door washing your feet so your feet won't dirty up the floors when you come in. But do you know, do you know how we relate to this, though? There's a lot of people that think things are too beneath them to serve other people. That I'm too far beyond that in my journey. I used to be there, but I've gotten beyond that now. Did you see what the Lord of Heaven did? The one that knew all authority, he could literally speak this world out of his existence if he wanted to. And at the moment he had all authority, he began washing dirty feet. If you look, there are seven specific steps mentioned here. So I'm going to do a little Bible study. For those of you that like Bible study, I'll show you something really cool I found in this this week. So look at verse 4 again. He got up from the table. Now, John, one of the closest disciples of Jesus, is writing this, and it's sort of, uh, he has spitfire sentences here. It's so vivid in his mind, most scholars would say, as he was writing this. It's just one after the other after the other. He got up from the table. He took off his robe. He wrapped a towel around his waist. He poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel he had around them. And then later it says that he sat down again. And so it's showing us how committed he was. Let me give you an idea. We, we think of the table that they were sitting at, something like this. But most scholars agree, and people who study the first century uh, customs, especially Jewish customs, it would have been a very low table, and they would have reclined around it, maybe even a U-shaped table. And so I hate to tell you, but the painting of the Lord's Supper and all the pictures you see uh, probably are not very accurate because it would have been a low table, and they would have reclined around the table with their feet sort of behind them. And so Jesus, what he would have done, he wouldn't have had to get under the table to wash. Their feet would have been behind him. So as he went around to wash feet, he would have kind of come behind them and begin washing their feet, going all the way around. And I think weird things. I'm thinking, you know, when he gets to Peter, he's like, hey, Peter, you got an ingrown toenail. You need to deal with that, bro, like it's bad. And then he keeps going around the table. I think weird things about Scripture because you know it happened. Like it was there. But I found something really interesting, though. In these seven steps, they have greater purpose, just like God would always let the word have greater purpose than we could ever wrap our minds around. Let me explain it to you. It says he got up from the table. Let me explain the story of redemption through this passage. Jesus got up off the throne of heaven for you and me. And then it says he took off his robe. You know what that represents in the gospel? The fact that he laid aside his heavenly authority. He took off the robe of majesty for a season. He put it on human limitation. It said he wrapped a towel around himself. That literally is him wrapping himself in flesh or human limitation. He poured water into a basin. Where did Jesus pour it out? Well, he poured out his blood on the cross. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet. And so what did he do in washing? Listen, whenever he poured out his blood on the cross and got up out of the grave, he offered us the ability to have our souls washed clean and be made new. And then he dried them with a towel. And I thought about the, how, how can that relate? Well, as he dried them with a towel, you know what that is? It says that whenever he gives us new life, he clothes us. He clothes us with righteousness. And so the towel is like clothing with righteousness, and he gives us the spirit to indwell us. And then a little bit later in the passage, it says he put on his robe and he sat down again. Well, what do we know about Jesus? After he did what he came here to do, he ascended to heaven and sat at the right hand of his father. Isn't it crazy 
how you can find the gospel story in a verse like that when you walk through it? So there's another question I ask myself. Not only is my identity fueling my humility, but it says that Jesus had all authority. And what did he do when he had all authority? You know what he could have done? He could have been sitting at the table, and at the moment that it came to him, all authority is mine, he could have looked at every disciple and said, all authority is mine, how dare you not wash my feet? I mean, that's what we're accustomed to, right? How dare you not wash my feet? I want you to know that I'm the Lord. How dare you? And go around to each disciple and get on to him. But it says, instead of doing that, he got up and started to serve them, to wash their feet. And so let me give you a question to ponder here. When you are given more authority in your life, do you serve or expect to be served? That tells me the kind of character that a man or woman has right there, that one thing. I've watched over time. You give somebody more authority, all it does is reveal who they are. You give more power, more money, more influence to a person. Listen, it doesn't make the person, it simply reveals who they are. Because a man or woman of God who is grounded in who he is, you know what happens? They just keep doing what they've always been doing. They just do more of it. When given more authority, do you serve people? Wrestle that to the ground for a minute. If you got what you're praying for right now, would you use it to serve or expect more from other people? Listen, that is a heart issue. That's a gospel issue. If all the prayers were answered for the money and the blessing that you want right now, why? Why, why, why are you praying for it? When given more authority, I think the, te- the greatest test when God gives you more leisure time or God gives you more money or God gives you more power or he gives you more leadership, when he gives you the promotion you're looking for, what is your response? Because that tells a lot of uh, people who you are. What did Jesus do? Now we see an interesting encounter with Peter next. Peter always is the guy in the group. If nobody else is going to speak up, by golly, he is. Whether it's right or wrong, good or bad, he's just going to say what's on his mind. How many of you are like that? You don't even think before you speak. You just say it. Peter, that's who you are. That's how it is. He got all the way through Scripture. Sometimes he seemed very bold. Like when he got to walk on the water, nobody else said it. So he said, Lord, if it's you, tell me, come. He got to walk on the water because he basically was just the first to speak up. But then there's other times where Jesus sort of has to shut him down because he speaks up and he's like, yeah, not exactly. This is one of those. It says, Jesus is coming around the table It says he comes finally to Simon Peter. He gets around to Peter, and here's what Peter said. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Now, let me tell you, this sounds really humble, but can I tell you what may have been going on in Peter's mind? He was probably watching Jesus go around and wash all the other other disciples' feet, and he begins judging them, going, how dare they let him wash uh, their feet? How dare they do that? And he says, well, if nobody else is going to say it, I'll say it. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Now, here's what Jesus said. He doesn't really answer the question. He just said, go back, go back one. He said, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. And that someday actually was just in a few minutes after this. And so look what Peter says. No, you will never wash my feet, Jesus. You ever had God trying to do something in your life? But you were telling him, no. I mean, sometimes I think God just kind of smiles and goes, (laughs) you crazy. Like, I'm trying to do something good for you here. No. 
So Peter, he goes, no, you'll never wash my feet. Now look what Jesus says. He says, unless I wash you, you don't belong to me. You can't be my child. You can't be my follower. You can't go to heaven. You can't have me now. So then Peter changes his tune. He goes from telling God no to going, hey, wash my hands and head as well, Lord. So he goes from telling Jesus no to telling Jesus what to do. Come on. Somebody feeling that? Aren't we like that? I mean, tell God no. And then, you know, well, God, actually, let me change my prayer. Let me tell you what to do now. But finally, he gets to the place where he humbles himself. Because here's what Jesus says, verse 10. He says, a person who is bathed all over does not need to wash. Now, let me give you the time out here. Something just happened that you can miss really easily. He just moved from talking about physical foot washing to what's going on spiritually in the room. Uh, most, uh, most people that study this passage agree that write about it, that they knew. They knew exactly what was happening right here. Because he's not talking about washing or taking a bath anymore. But he says, a person who's bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. And so Jesus flips the script to a spiritual reality here. What does it mean, those who have bathed all over? Well, he's talking about those who have surrendered to Jesus Christ. You could actually equate that to baptism, that surrender of the soul and baptized. Those who've been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for salvation and forgiveness of sin, those who have called to him for Lord, you've already been bathed, so you don't need another bath, Peter. But what you do need is your feet washed. You know what Jesus is telling us here? Just because there's a one-and-done baptism and a surrender to Christ, there is still daily repentance of foot washing. You step in some stuff that you didn't even mean to step into when you walk around in this world. Even when you've been at the table, listen, you can pull up the table and do some praying and do some word study. You can get in the word. You can listen to sermons. You can pull up table and just spend silent time meditating before the Lord. And then you can get out and walk right out your door and step in something. You know what I mean? You get a phone call right when you're walking out, and all of a sudden you just stepped in something you didn't know was coming your way that day. Or you find yourself drifting back towards a bad habit because it's been a really stressful day. Well, here's what Jesus was saying. Just because you've been washed, you don't, have to just, you don't have to get saved again, but you do have to clean your feet. You've got to come back in daily repentance to him. And so that's what he was getting at with Peter here. And then Jesus lets us know, and this is really important for the next part. He's really, it's really important to know it says he knew who would betray him. He said, not all of you are clean, a.k.a. not all of you have surrendered your life to me. I wonder if he ever looks around the room in the church and just goes, some of you look better than the ones that are surrendered, but I know your heart. I ain't trying to judge you. I'm just calling it what it is. I wonder if he would say, there's some that just, you just hadn't surrendered to me. You like me. You like church, but you've never really surrendered your life to me. See, he washed Judas's feet. Literally, moments later, Judas would put back on his shoes, he would walk out the door, and he would sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Look at verse 12. After washing their feet, he put his robe on again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? Now, you remember that awkward silence we talked about last week? I don't think there's a, they should leave a gap here. Because I think when he says, hey, do you understand what I was doing? I think nobody spoke up. I think they sat there going, it's a trick question. So Jesus says, let me tell you what I was doing. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. 
because that's what I am. But look at this. Since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. You want to talk about a shame and guilt bomb being dropped in the room? Not for the sake of destruction, but for the sake of realization. He looked at them and didn't say, hey, you should have washed my feet. He looked at them and said, because I washed your feet, so you should do to each other. A lot of us wish this read, because Jesus washed your feet, you should wash his. But what does it say? It says, I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the ones who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. See, one of the greatest messages Jesus ever preached in all of his ministry, he preached with a towel in his hand that had just washed the feet of 12 filthy disciples. And so I want to walk back through this for a moment. And I want to focus on what Jesus wanted to teach the disciples and shift the question. See, a lot of times people ask this question, what did Jesus do? Anybody got that bracelet or you got that shirt? You got that something? I see some people like WWJD. Maybe you didn't know that's what it stands for. I talk to some people sometimes and they'll have a WWJD and I'll say, hey, that's a cool bracelet. They don't have any idea what it means that this looked cool. So they got it on. What would Jesus do? That's the question that we like to ask. I'm not saying it's wrong. I've had a bracelet myself that says, what would Jesus do? But I want to give you a better question, a more convicting question as we get to this. See, people ask, what would Jesus do? But when we look at what he did do, here's the question. I want to shift the question from what would Jesus do to what did Jesus do? Here's the thing where a lot of people push back from the gospel, (laughs) Because see, what would Jesus do gives us a little bit of interpretation. Well, Joe, surely he wouldn't want me to stoop so low as to wash that person's feet. Kind of like the Good Samaritan story. Who is my neighbor? Tell me who my neighbor is, and then I'll decide if I'm going to serve him. But what happens in your life when you change the question to what did Jesus do? You don't need a lot of interpretation there. You know what he did? He got up from the table first. What does foot washing mean today? I mean, we don't, Jesus says he took, you know, water and he poured it in the bowl that day and he began to go around and wash each of the disciples' feet and then take the towel and dry it. I mean, it took a while. He's going around the table and I'm sure it was awkward silence as he did this. But what does foot washing look like today? See, I don't see scripturally that we're commanded to come into the church and take off your shoes and everybody have your feet washed. And even though that would be weird, we're, not, we're just not used to it like they would have been. Most of you would be like, yeah, I'm going to the bathroom and I'm never coming back to this church again. If you do that right now, you're just weird, bro. I'm not saying there's not a place in time where it could be a meaningful thing. I'm really not. But also, I don't believe Jesus was instituting an ordinance of foot washing that you have to do this. So what does it look like today? What does it look like to become Jesus, to pour the water, to wash the feet of people, and then to dry it again? See, I think some people will... Well, maybe led to Jesus by the way that we wash feet, especially if we bring it into modern context. So let me give you the modern day foot washing. Let me show you what I think it is. Modern day foot washing is an attitude and a mentality that says this, there is no act of service that is below me. When the spirit prompts me or when opportunity is in front of me, I will act. 
So when you see this Jesus washing the disciples' feet, I pray that your mind can go here. He's not saying literally that you need to wash feet. But it could be that it's serving your family, that serving people in your community, serving people in your path that you see. Sometimes it feels beneath you and God's going, get off your high horse, man. Like, I know you look good and I know you're more put together than that person and I know you got a little more money, but come on, get off your high horse. You're a nothing without me. You would have nothing that I didn't give to you. And so therefore, I want you to get off your high horse and get ready to wash somebody's feet. What does that look like? Give sacrificially. Love people. Go out of your way to pray over people. Go out of your way. Listen, get out of your normal routine when God prompts you to go and show love to somebody. Call your family back together again. Be the first one to reach out and show love. See, when I look back on this story, I actually see three people. Now, there were 12 men in the room that day. They were Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Judas Iscariot, the guy who would betray him. There was Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Bartholomew, Judas Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot. Those were the 12 disciples. 11 of those would continue into the, uh, the church age, and they would add Matthias as the new 12th one in the book of Acts, if you read it. But among these men, these 12 men, there are three characteristics that I think we find in our lives today. Three different types of people that Jesus washed their feet. So I want to give them to you. Jesus washed the feet first of the born again. Now this is a fancy word. It just says those who have surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. They've been given new life on the inside. Jesus actually used this word in the book of John earlier when he's talking to a guy named Nicodemus. Because he told Nicodemus, he said, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. everybody's born once, but you must be born again. What he meant is by the Spirit. You have to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. And so Jesus here washed the feet of the born again because at least 11 of the guys in the room were born again believers, followers of Jesus Christ. Why is it important to note that he washed the feet of the born again? That's your brothers and sisters. That's the church. Why is that important? Shouldn't we do that anyway? Yeah, But isn't that usually the people that hurt us the most, the people closest to us? Come on now. Sometimes it's the people in our own house that we have. We'll go, listen, I go out and buy somebody's food. I go out and do a good deed. I go out and help somebody far from me. But then I go back home and act like a jerk. I hope I'm not talking to you, but I know at one time I was talking to myself. To wash the feet of the born again, to those that are in the family of God. I still, this, this is just something the Lord's been doing to me. There have been people who've been hurt by church. Maybe when you were little or you had just a bad concept because of something that happened, but you've been hurt in that way and you still carry that. And listen, you may be washing feet or you may be, there's no act too low that I'll do for anybody else, but not for my brothers and sisters. I pray the conviction of the Holy Spirit falls on your heart right now to go, it has to start at home. You know what Jesus said? People will know that we are his disciples by the way that we love each other. That was an internal comment. How we love the people that we're supposed to love the most, those right around us right here. Those that are called followers of Jesus. Listen, I'm going to tell you this about Riverbend. A couple weeks we're kicking off a mission and vision series, and I'm excited about it. It will require every born-again believer to forgive first their brothers and sisters, though. We cannot succeed unless we're willing to let the Spirit of God get our own heart right. You may be keeping yourself from healing if you're refusing to wash the feet of brothers and sisters. 
Jesus got hurt by the church. All 12 of these guys, one of them betrayed him, the other 11 forsake him the night that he would be arrested. But not only did Jesus wash the feet of the born again, that actually is one of the characteristics of those 12 disciples. Here's another one. He washed the feet of the better than. Now, I know I'm preaching to somebody on this. It's easy to serve somebody who is appreciative of your service. It's hard to serve people who think they didn't need you anyway, who are haughty about what you did for them, who don't say thank you. You ever had this thought, well, I'd do something for you again, but you didn't tell me thank you for the last time. That's of the enemy. Because see, if the Spirit has prompted you, that's the voice to listen to, not the gratitude that comes back. Better than. See, all the disciples, they didn't think they were better than Jesus, but they thought they were better than each other. Better thans. No one was willing to go first in the foot washing that day. It was too, too beneath them. See, this is for somebody who refuses to serve people who appear prideful. Can I tell you the secret that I've learned as a pastor? People who have a strong face of pride usually are the most hurt. The most damaged from their past, from their childhood, from how their dad treated them, from how their mom treated them, from the trauma they went through. Sometimes they don't even realize they're that way, but you see it. And you know what we're tempted to do? Let the enemy talk us out of serving people who are haughty or prideful or feel or, or act like they're better than us. And we let our own pride get in the way, don't we? Think about what Jesus did. Nobody was willing to even wash his feet because they wouldn't wash the feet of the others. I don't like this idea, but it's what Jesus did. See, your act of humility in serving people who look down on you may just be what opens the door for them to see the gospel. Because there's a point in time where they're going to go, why? When you could be doing anything else, why are you showing me kindness? I didn't need you to start... Why are you showing me love? And the truth is, you've just been prompted by the Spirit of God. See, there's somebody in the room. I know this today as I was praying this week. Somebody in the room, and you gave up on somebody because of how haughty they were, prideful they were. They didn't say thank you, but you knew that the Spirit of God was saying, pray for them, do good to them, reach out to them, encourage them, and you held back. Listen, let the floodgates open this morning. There's one other person in the room and it was only one that we know about and that would be Judas so not only the born again and the better thans but this is the last one the backstabbers you might go Joe I can serve the born again come on now I'll wash the feet of the church on the way out I'll even serve those that act better than but backstabbers forget it you do realize that it pointed out several times Jesus knew Jesus that Judas was the betrayer and what did he do he brought the bowl He knelt down right at his feet. I'm not sure there weren't tears in his eyes as he thought about this guy that was about to stab him in the back. As he poured the water in the bowl and he washed Judas' feet, maybe there were tears coming out of his eyes. Maybe there was hurt and pain and emotion that we would all feel if we were doing good for somebody who had hurt us. And I'm not saying you need to put yourself in a dangerous situation. That's not what I'm advocating for. Most of the time, though, it's just the fact that we've been hurt by them. There may be no greater test of your faith than to love and show compassion to someone who has hurt you when you have opportunity to pray for them or give. And it's a process. Peter went through a process here. But here's the deal. Church, somebody has to be the first one up. And the question is this. Will it be me? So that's the question today. Will it be 
me? Will it be you? The first one to get up. See, someone has to be the first to forgive. Someone has to be the first to let go of the past. Somebody's got to be first to serve the other. Somebody has to be the first one to seek restoration. Someone has to be the first to take action. Someone has to be the first to humble themselves. So I wonder if there's anyone today tuned in, and here's you. You know that you have the opportunity to be the first one up to bring healing in your family, to maybe even seek out healing for your own mental health or from things from your past. But the truth is, your pride is keeping you nailed to the chair. Aren't we thankful that Jesus didn't stay in the seat? He got up that day and he said, do unto each other as I have done to you. And so repaying God is not doing for him what he's done for us. It's doing for others what's been done for us. And so the question is, will you be the first one up? Pride keeps us from so much healing in our lives. Pride keeps us from so much of experiencing God's best for our lives. I, would, I wouldn't be too scared to say that pride is even keeping somebody from surrendering to Jesus. And what I mean by that, it's so much easier to do for others than it is to let him do for you. When Jesus comes around to our feet and wants to cleanse our soul and cleanse our life, it's so shameful how dirty we are that we don't even want him to see that or we pretend like he can't see it. So we just stay seated. We hide ourselves. We say, no, God, not me, not right now. Let me get myself cleaned up a little bit. Then I'll come to you. And here's Jesus just saying, come on, get over your pride. Let me bring healing to your life today. But you have to just, just lay yourself bare before the Lord and say, God, here's my heart. Here's all my nastiness. Here's the mess of my past. Here's the pain I'm currently going through. Lord, here's the mental state that I'm in that's so bad. Here's the addiction that has a grip on me. Lord, here, here's the things that are destroying my marriage and my family. Here's the things that have taken me out of being the man or the woman you've created me to be. Lay it all bare before the Lord. Let your pride go and let him in. And as soon as you open your heart to that, listen, he receives you. He doesn't turn you away. It's just like the disciples. As soon as we'll turn our chair towards him and say, okay, Jesus, you can wash my feet. He comes in with his gospel of love and he begins to wash our conscience. He begins to bring healing to our heart and in our life. And then that begins to show up in our lives. And it may take a long time for the outworking, uh, for us to see the outworking of it, but it starts there. And then he dries us and he closes us with love and he closes us with the righteousness. But you got to surrender your life to him. You got to be the first one up. If that's you as a follower, you got to be willing to get out of the chair and say, Jesus, me first. I'll forgive first. I'll surrender to you first. And so I want to lead you in a prayer today of surrender. If that's you, First, for those maybe that pride has held you back from just turning your heart to Jesus. I want to lead you in a prayer of surrender. Just pray this from your heart to the heart of God right now. Say, Jesus, I'm finally ready to surrender to you. I bring all my shame, all my nastiness, all my past, and all the mess I'm in right now. I bring it to you. And I'm asking you to save me. I'm willing to turn away from my sin and I'm putting my faith in you for salvation. Forgive me, God. And just tell him this, thank you for accepting me in Jesus' name. And listen, if you pray that from your heart to the heart of God and you finally laid your pride aside, there is a party in heaven and we would love to celebrate with you. But I want to pray for those, and you're the one. You are a believer. You're a child of God. But listen, your pride has you sitting in the chair. And the, this morning, 
the Lord or wherever you're watching this, the Lord right now has grabbed your heart and said, it's time for you to go first. Here's the prayer. It's really simple. Just pray this to the heart of God. Say, Jesus, I'm ready to go first. I'm ready to forgive. I'm ready to seek restoration. I'm ready to seek healing. And then ask him, say, God, will you help me? And listen, he will. I want you to know this. I know that these are difficult things to wrestle with. And I'm praying for you right now. But will you walk this out? Will you live it out? Remember that you matter. There are people right here at Riverbend. And I pray this week, you will sit at the table with Jesus and be fed and be in his presence. But then when it's time to get up, you'll be the first one up to serve. God bless. Thank you for listening to the Riverbend Church Podcast. To learn more about who we are as a church and how to connect, you can head over to our website, riverbendchurch.life.